A reading from 2 Corinthians. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. The word of the Lord. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, They have their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who is in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not pray like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, They have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who is in secret will reward you. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast... Anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who is in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. 
God has gifts to give to his people every liturgical calendar season. In one sense, he's always giving gifts. His generosity is not bound by our calendars and by our schedules. Uh, In fact, he never seems to go by our schedules. But it seems that God is pleased to give different gifts in different times. In fact, it seems that some gifts actually require time in order to be given. Some gifts take time to give. Growing up, my mom was uh, a director of many plays. She studied drama and theater in college, and I got to see her uh, expand that that love and carry that into other avenues. Uh, When you go and watch a play, you're receiving a gift. You're receiving a gift from the directors, from the actors, from the stagehands, from the makeup artists, and everyone else involved. And that gift takes time. You might sit for two hours and watch a play. There are some gifts that you can, you can only receive with time. In fact, maybe the best gifts you can only see, receive across time. You will never know the gift of 20 years of marriage unless, well, you undergo 20 years of marriage. In each liturgical season, God has numerous gifts to give to his church. In Advent, he wants to give us hope and expectation. He wants to give us this seemingly naive trust of a child that just knows that there will be presents waiting for them one day under that tree. In Epiphany, he wants to give us amazement and wonder. In Christmas, he wants to give us his very self in the flesh. And during Epiphany, whenever he gives us amazement and wonder, he's giving us this amazement that the God-man is being more and more revealed to be God. Until in the transfiguration, we see that the very face of Jesus is the very face of God. In every liturgical season, we are meant not just to learn about Christ, but we are meant to learn about our own callings. Remember that the word Christian means little Christs. During Christmas, we don't just celebrate God as gift, but we learn of our responsibility to be gifts to other people. In Epiphany, we don't just see the growing manifestation of Jesus Christ, but we also see our responsibility to increasingly manifest God to other people. So much so that perhaps one day they can experience the face of God, the smile of God through our face in a kind of transfiguration. In these ways, we repeat the life of Christ. And the life of Christ is a way of repeating God within our own life. We are trying to become idioms or local accents of the word of God that was spoken in Jesus Christ. And as we play out the life of Christ in our own life, we participate in the very life of God. Participating in the life of God is what the epistle reading calls reconciliation. But we'll talk about that in just a second. When we come to Lent, God has more gifts to give to his church. He wants to give us the gift of repentance. He wants to give us the gift of purgation and sanctification. During Lent, we are given the gift of a new path to follow. This path is the path of the cross. After, God, after Christ was revealed to be the Son of God incarnate, he was then further revealed to be the God who is humble, so humble that he would embrace the death on a cross. This humility is a habit of life that we lack, but this too is one of the things that God wants to give us during Lent. There are many gifts that God wants to give you this Lent, These gifts often come in the form of lessons, and these lessons are taught to us throughout the very practices that we adopt during Lent. 
You heard at the very beginning of the service in one of the, in one of the prayers that, uh, that the church has always encouraged at least three practices for Lent. Fasting, prayer, and almsgiving. Through these practices, God teaches us many lessons. But I want to point out just three. Just three lessons that God wants to teach us during Lent. First, in the practices of Lent, we are taught the proper way to move through time. In the practices of Lent, we are taught the proper way to move through time. Sin is always hasty. Sin wants us to move fast. Sin is always a grabbing and a trying to secure what it wants. Remember in Genesis, Adam and Eve were given all the trees to eat from the Garden of Eden, except for one. And when you look in Revelation, we see that all who are redeemed in the new heavens and new earth actually can eat of that tree. So there's reason to think that that tree was always, was always going to be given to them just in the right time when they were ready for it. Adam and Eve did not wait for God's timing. They wanted to speed up the clock. And sin is always like this. Sin is always a hasty grab for, for a good thing that God has already promised to give you. Sin is always a hasty grab at a good thing that God has already promised to give you. We live in a culture of immediacy. We want fast food, fast money, quick success, easy entertainment. We're told that it's a dog-eat-dog world out there, and if you want to get your little piece of the pie, then you better take it first. And sometimes we're tempted to carry these tendencies into Lent. And this is what our gospel passage is about. Normally it takes years of faithfully and quietly serving the Lord in order for people to notice you. And that's a good thing. We celebrate saints in the Anglican tradition because we, we hold up models, say this is someone whose life of prayer we should emulate. This is someone whose life of fasting we should emulate. But in the gospel reading, we see people who want to speed up the clock. People who want to hastily grab at those years of faithfulness just by being showy. You could speed up the clock just by being showy about it. You could pray loud for everyone to hear. You could fast in very obvious ways. You can give in very obvious ways. And our gospel reading straightforwardly condemns this. I think that most Christians, this seems obvious. However, I think that, this, that sin as the hasty clutching of immediacy creeps up everywhere, particularly in our pursuit of good things. Now, true Christianity does not deny the goodness of creation. True Christianity never rejects the pleasures of earthly delights. In fact, we believe that God has diffused himself into creation such that he is the sweetness of chocolate. He is the radiance of the stars. He is the beauty of every beautiful person. As Christians, we know that every pleasure is the pleasure of God. However, we are often blind to the God who is in and yet beyond the things that we enjoy. Experiencing God in good things, we look at the thing and we mistake it for God. When this happens, we move from the God-given enjoyment to greedy accumulation of grabbing and grasping, trying to achieve for ourselves. When we pursue pleasures in this way, then we become, our appetites become insatiable. In fact, Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 19, that he's describing some people and he says that their God is actually their belly. And their mind is set on earthly things. Sometimes our, our gods become our belly. Even as Christians, we are dominated by our appetites. And so we, we hastily grab for good things 
We desire the goodness of peace. And so we snap at our children to get them to stop yelling. We desire the goodness of food, and so we become gluttonous. We desire the goodness of security, and so we are tempted to steal from others. We desire the goodness of art, and so we binge on Netflix. In all the grasping for good things, we forget the one who gives all good things in their proper time. In frantically clutching for good things, we are attempting to become like God ourselves. If sin is always a hasty grab for good things, then sin is really a failure to move through time well. It's a failure to move through time with faith. It is a failure to trust in the God who gives good gifts in their proper time. But in Lent, we learn to wait through fasting. In fasting, we refrain from grabbing, from clutching, from seizing. We go without the good things that we desire. We give it up. We deny ourselves the pleasures of this world. Some people look at this and say, this is pure asceticism. This is just denying the goodness of the world. However, they forget that the great fast of Lent comes right before the greatest feast day of the year, Easter. We know as Christians that the way to truly desire the feast is through fasting. The way that we wait for the feast is through fasting. We know that good things are the things that we want. The fast, I mean, the, the feasting is what we want. And so we wait for it. We deny ourselves things. Because we don't want to be de- dominated by our appetites and our desires, but we want to desire what we should desire in the right time. We want to re- learn to receive good things in their proper time. By fasting, we learn to feel in our bodies the hunger pains that our soul naturally feels for God. In fasting, we remind our souls that what we truly desire is God. We thought we desired food or sex or power, but really the soul longs for these things because it longed for God who is in them. Every pleasure is God giving himself to you. It is him that we wait for. We thought it was a job. We thought it was a spouse. We thought it was a dream. But those were only channels through which our desire longed for God. So Lent is a time to notice our attachments. It's a time to attend to our desires. It's a time to look at what we crave. And perhaps by giving these up for a while, we will learn what is behind them, what we really want. We do this, as we do this, we receive the gift of moving through time well. We learn more through time we, more, we learn more about moving through time in faith. Faith in the God who gives us good things in the proper time. We learn to enjoy every good thing for what it is. A genuine experience of God who is in it, but yet beyond it. So in the practices of Lent, we learn how to move through time in faith. But that's not the only lesson that we learn during Lent. Through the practices of Lent, we are also taught that true life requires death. Throughout life, we develop habits and forms of life that make us who we are. Sometimes you'll hear someone use the phrase, oh, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. And what they're trying to articulate is how we each become formed into particular people over time. And that once we become a particular kind of person, it's actually really difficult to change. It's kind of like taking an old dog who is stuck in his ways and turning them into a new dog who is malleable and able to be trained. I think we intuitively feel how hard it is to change. Change is always a death. 
It always feels like death. It feels like the person who we had become, the person we kind of rather liked, is dying. We've all adopted habits of sinfulness. We become the people that we are partially as a result of the culture that we grew up in, partially as a result of the family that we grew up in. However, we also develop into sinful people because of our own choices, our repeated choices, our years of continual choices. However, the gospel promises us that we can be changed. We can be made new. We can be a new dog who learns new tricks. This, in, in the, in the uh, epistle passage, Paul's talking about this. In verse 20, he says, he's, he's begging us and he says, We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He really wants us to accept this. He says, today is the day of salvation. If we are reconciled to God, then through the power of, his, of this renewed relationship, Paul says in the next verse that we can become the righteousness of God. When he says that we can become the righteousness of God, he is saying that we can learn to live in such a way that our life actually shows forth and manifests the very righteousness that we can associate with God. Being reconciled means that God is no longer estranged from us. There's no longer enmity between us because of our sin. Being reconciled means that God's life and my life are so intertwined that my life has the ability to show something of God's life. Christians can become a visible enactment of the invisible life of God because we've been reconciled to him. Now the natural question would be, okay, what does this life look like? And in this passage, Paul actually points to his own life as an example. And when we hear that kind of introduction, we're like, oh, this is going to be good. But when he starts to tell you about his life, it actually seems rather traumatic. In verses 4 and 5, we read a description that sounds something like, like something that would kill you. He says, By great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. Now, I don't know about you, but all that sounds like death. Sounds like something I don't want to sign up for. But after this list of death, he does give you a little hope. He describes the same life in a way that actually doesn't sound too bad. In verse, uh, verses 6 and 7, he says, By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Okay, that all sounds great. That sounds nice. That sounds like, like life, not like the death that he was describing before. So the reader may be thinking, okay, there will be a time, there will be some times that are going to be bad, and that's going to feel like death. And there's going to be some times that feels like life. And I can deal with the bad as long as there are these lifetimes. However, Paul doesn't leave us there. In verses 8 through 10, he actually combines the, the two. And the same life is filled with death and life. Notice what he says, through honor and dishonor. Through slander and praise, we are treated as imposters, and yet we're true, as unknown, and yet we're well-known. As dying, and behold, we live, as punished, and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, and yet possessing everything. Paul is trying to make clear that the life of the Christian, the life that manifests the very life of God, is a mysterious blending of life and death. To be reconciled to God and to have his life intertwined into your own such that your life can show something of his life requires that we undergo death in the midst of our life. 
This means that we often experience our life as if it were a death. This is true because we always are in the process of change. Whenever we change, there's a little bit of us that actually kind of liked how we were. And so we cling on to it, and that's painful. Sometimes, uh, it, it, sometimes we experience death in the midst of life because those around us don't like the change that's happening to us. Everything was great for Paul whenever he was persecuting the church. Everything was great for him when he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. But when he converted, whenever he started becoming a Christian, when he was an apostle of Jesus Christ, that's when everything changed. That's whenever he all of a sudden received honor in the midst of dishonor. He became slandered in the midst of praise. Everything was taken away from him, and yet he had everything. It looks as if he was dying, and yet behold, that's what life looked like. Sometimes our life feels like a death because we have dreams and hopes that seem to keep falling away. We make plans for our life. We have dreams for how we see our future. And yet God has other plans. These are often the most painful deaths. The deaths that we don't want to die. But notice what is happening here. It's not as if we have death on the one hand, over here, and then we have life over here. These are actually the same thing. In the Christian life, these become one thing. By dying to the person that I wanted to be, I live in Christ. By dying to the expectations of others, I live the expectations of God. By dying to my hopes and dreams, I live the life that God has for me. Death and life become the same action for true Christians. During Lent, we learn to live in such a way that we're dying. By fasting, we train the muscle in our soul that is required to change. You may be giving meat up for Lent, or you may be giving up chocolate or something like that, but that simple act of self-denial is meant to train us in the habits of heart that are, required to give up to, that are required to give up sinful habits of life that we have accumulated. The true fast is to abstain from sinfulness. The thing that we have to give up is those sins that so easily beset us. But those are the hardest things to give up. In fasting during Lent, God builds within us the strength and courage to forego sin, even though this feels like a death. We embrace the suffering of self-denial fasting because the Christian life is a life of continually embracing our death. We know that the path of life is the path of the, of the cross. Fasting trains us in the art of saying what Christ said in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will be done, but thy will be done. But notice in saying, not my will be done, but thy will be done, you're talking about the same action. What I don't want to happen is what you want to happen. And that's what's going to happen. And this is what the, the Christian life is about. So in the practices of Lent, we learn many lessons. We learn how to move through time. We learn that true life requires death continually. Finally, I want, I want you to see that the practices of Lent teach us that life is a pilgrimage. As I mentioned at the beginning, the church has always recommended three things during Lent. Fasting, prayer, and almsgiving. In my first two points, I talked about fasting. And in this point, I'm going to talk about prayer. And you'll notice something conspicuously missing. However, it's not missing from the service. Because if you pay attention to our reading of the Old Testament, Isaiah makes very clear. What is the true fast? I think he says in verse 7 that it's feeding the hungry. So almsgiving is very, very important. It just will be relegated to another Ash Wednesday sermon. 
It is important to see Lent as a pilgrimage. The 40 days of Lent are meant to symbolically take us back to the Old Testament where Israel was wandering in the wilderness for 40 years on their way to the promised land. This was a time of temptation for them, and often they failed. Also, these 40 days symbolically represent the 40 days that Jesus Christ was in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. Jesus was replaying the history of Israel and showing that he was the true Israel. He was the one who was going to fulfill God's plan for saving the world, a plan that the Israelites failed. In Lent, we replay the life of Christ in our own life. And like Christ, we also enact the history of Israel. This means that Lent reminds us that life is a pilgrimage to the promised land. Israel was saved from slavery and sin and death when they were freed from Egypt. But this newfound salvation wasn't rosy and easy. In fact, it was, it was kind of difficult because as soon as they walked through the Red Sea, they found themselves in the midst of a desert. They had a pilgrimage to make. Not everything was over. They had a journey to the promised land that was flowing with milk and honey. The church has her own pilgrimage to make. In baptism, we are freed from the shackles of sin and death. We are freed from slavery. In baptism, Satan, our own Pharaoh, our own slave driver, is washed away in the waters of baptism. And yet we still have the rest of our lives to live. It's because the church is always a people on the way. The church is always in a pilgrimage, in the midst of temptation. And Lent is what reminds us of this. This is why during Lent we are invited to lean more into prayer. St. John uh, Damascene said that prayer is the raising of our hearts and minds to God. I think this is a helpful way to think about prayer. If prayer is a raising of our hearts and minds to God, then prayer, if you think about it, is like a momentary pilgrimage. All of life is a raising of our whole selves to God. All of life is a pilgrimage, but prayer is an instant pilgrimage where in a moment we are, we are all of a sudden with God in the heavenly kingdom. It's almost as if we were traveling in the desert and all of a sudden we are transported into the promised land where we commune with God. This is what prayer is. We undergo, we undergo hundreds of these pilgrimages as we pray during Lent. And God uses these to train us to think of our whole life as a pilgrimage. Our whole life should be a prayer to God. Our whole life should be a raising of our whole selves, not just our minds and our hearts, to God. This is why Paul says that we should pray without ceasing. We should pray without ceasing because life is a pilgrimage. Life is prayer. The church has often thought about prayer as a kind of journey or passage. Sometimes this has been pictured by moving your fingers across beads, showing that as you move your fingers across beads, you're actually moving yourself. Because prayer, when you start prayer and when you end prayer, you're not in the same place. When you finish prayer, you're in a different place than when you started. At other times, especially during Lent, the church has encouraged us to do something called the Stations of the Cross, where we move with our own bodies in a kind of trajectory through the cross of Christ, through his story, showing that in prayer, we are really moving. Prayer is how we move through our pilgrimage. Prayer moves us from space to space. And so we could say that if fasting teaches us to move through time well, then prayer teaches us to move through space. Prayer teaches us that life is a pilgrimage. As we come to Lent, God has 
many gifts to give to his people. The gift that he is always most eager to give is participation in his very life. The gift that he is always most eager to give is reconciliation with you. Through reconciliation, we repeat God's life in our own life. I've given you just three ways in which God gives us these gifts. He teaches us how to move through time. He teaches us that life, that true life requires death. And he teaches us that life is a pilgrimage. May God be with us during this Lent as we follow Christ to the cross.